0: Three, two, one. Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt and I'm Tim, and
1: we like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring those insights to you. Our goal
0: is to help bring great ideas from around the globe to you and that you can learn and
1: make changes that will improve your life. Okay, Kurt, so talking about life, where are you spending most of your life right now? Well, since there is this
0: little thing called a pandemic going on, most (laughs) of my life has been
1: basically inside or right around my house. I've heard about that. And what are you doing there? Are you becoming a DIY expert or making the house improvements that you've always talked about? Like, are you playing Monopoly with the kids or learning how to make bread? What are you? Are you (laughs) the sourdough king of South Minneapolis now? What, where are you? You you?
0: know, that would be the life that I want. The, The sourdough king of South Minneapolis is my dream. But no, unfortunately, uh, It's mostly
1: watching uh, Netflix movies and being online. So, (laughs) Okay. Okay. So that's the reality for a lot of us. And do you ever wonder how much information companies and governments are able to get from you while you're doing these things online and your Netflix activities?
0: I I guess there is that nagging concern in the back of my head about how much they know about me and how they use that
1: information. But... uh, Okay. It's nagging in the back of my head. Okay. Well, that is what we are going to talk about today in our episode with Sandra Motz. Sandra is the David W. Zalaznik Associate Professor of Business at Columbia Business School, and she takes a big data approach to studying human behavior in a variety of business-related domains. She combines methodologies from psychology and computer science, including machine learning, experimental designs, online surveys, and field studies- and all that to explore the relationship between people's personality and the digital footprints that they leave with every step they take in the digital environment. The conversation was both enlightening and I have to say a bit
0: scary when Sandra explains just how easy it is for organizations to mine our digital data and the picture that they can paint with that, the picture of who we are and what our fears and hopes are. And while this isn't all doom and gloom, the conversation definitely forced me to think more about my digital footprint and how
1: extensive that footprint is. Boy, agreed to that. But without further ado, sit back with your hot digital profile and listen to our conversation with Sandra Motz. Sandra Motz, welcome to Behavioral Grooves.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Hi.
1: We are so glad to have you here, and we're going to get started with a speed round because that's what we do. So,
0: so do you want? Do you like to wake up early or stay up late?
2: Oh, that's a good question. I don't like either, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but If I had to choose, choose one of the two, I think I would probably stay up late. Okay. All right.
1: Okay. Good. Uh, prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. Dinner with your favorite
0: athlete, uh, artist. Or musician, artist being actor, artist
2: being okay. separate from musician, I think <laughs> yes. you're going to get a- it. Actor,
0: actress. Uh, uh, uh,
2: um, that's a great question. I'm not really into sports, which I know is an absolute no-go for someone living in the U.S. Um, I think I would go with musician and probably pick Taylor Swift. Let's, let's go. Oh, with. Uh, yeah.
1: Taylor
0: would be interesting to talk to. Yeah. I mean, she started off so young in the business and it'd be just interesting to see, you know, what her life has been like. It's, yeah. it, that would be cool. And
2: yeah. she's become she's become quite vocal in in other areas. So I think that's one of the reasons why I really like her because she's taking it a step further.
1: And who knows, yeah, so sort of who knows where she's gonna go with that because she's yeah. on a trajectory that is virtually infinite in terms of the possibilities that she could. could go okay last speed round question um how many clicks on social media does it take to indicate your personality
2: (laughs) that's a good one it depends a little bit on what those clicks are um and how high you're aiming but let's say you have about 100 to 500 that's that's more than enough to get a sense of who you are um for better or worse
0: you know there's research on this so so give us a little bit of background on on how this came about and 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 what you've been studying on this this aspect
2: yeah more than happy to it's one of the topics that i i really care about right because oftentimes we all browse the internet whether that's um social media like liking something replying to a comment and posting about our um avocado lunch that we've had like all the good stuff (laughs) that is happening in our lives um but it's really interesting because we oftentimes do that pretty mindlessly, right? We just kind of click here and there. We just go about our everyday lives. But what we found over the, the recent, the last couple of years is that those traces are really intimate and they're really predictive of, of who you are. So it's not just that this is what you do, um, but it can really tell us an awful lot about who you are as a person, right? So what you, what you like on Facebook can be an indication of your personality, what you write about, um, might be an indication of your mental health, whether you're struggling or whether you're currently thriving. So it's really all of these, um, all of these what we call digital footprints combined really create this picture um, of, of who you are. And I think of them as, as little puzzle pieces. So it was like these, these puzzle pieces and numbers, right? So you click on something and that in and by itself might not necessarily um, tell the full story, but if you put all of them together, you suddenly see this picture emerge of who is that person and what are they potentially going through right now?
1: Is it difficult to put that picture together?
2: It is surprisingly easy. Um, And I think that's the, um, if you think of it from a user perspective, that's to some extent the scary part. So I think this is a a science that has been around for, let's say, the last 10 years, maybe max. Um, And in the beginning, most of us were really surprised. I think none of us saw this coming when we first started working on this. Um, we just kind of had a bunch of, like the um, self descriptions, personality scores, and we looked at people's Facebook profiles. And really over time, what we saw is that pretty much anything that we're trying to predict, we could predict from these profiles. And it's really not rocket science. So on the on the simplest level, all it takes is count a couple of words. Like wait, what are you talking about when it comes to, to, to social media? And um, what are the things that you like those are all really basic statistical procedures that are based on correlations and simple relationships. And it's just that if we put all of this together, um, it can tell us a lot.
0: And so you correlate these, these likes into a personality using Big Five or Ocean. So how accurate is this and how you said that, hey, it's been surprising of how predictive these can be. Tell us a little bit more about that
2: yeah I think I mean, to me that's the that's the most fascinating part, right? Because you look at all of these individual um relationships, and they do make a lot of sense. So for psychologists, that's amazing because most of the time what we're interested in is trying to understand human behavior, trying to explain how one thing leads to it uh, relates to the other. So when you look at um language, for example, what you see when you look at the the Facebook posts of extroverted people, for example, they talk about, all of the things that you would expect extroverts to do. So they talk about their fun weekends with friends. They talk about the amazing adventures they've had with um, with others. They talk about all of the things that are really social, that are exciting and um, that get them hyped up. And then you contrast that with some of the words that are appear in the posts of introverted people. And they talk about computers, about reading, about enemies, about manga. So you can picture this introverted person, right? So you have a, you can kind of conjure this image of there's a person sitting at home, reading a book, <laughs> going through some, some comics. And, and it's really amazing how these simple relationships already tell quite a lot about what might be happening in some of the more complicated algorithms. So really, this is one of the things that I always uh, like to highlight in, in talks that I give is people always talk about AI and machine learning. And obviously that's what's powering a lot of these predictions. But at the end of the day, all of these models are based on pretty, pretty simple relationships.
1: <laughs> so what are we? Pred- I, that's I love that, by the way, I think mm-hmm. that's fantastic that this it really is kind of simple that we are maybe more transparent than we think, at some level, what are the things that you're predicting? from these clicks and from these replies and and the, the likes that we have on social media.
2: Yeah. It's funny because we're to some extent, like what you said is like we're transparent, but that's partly because we like to express ourselves, right? Like we like to express our identities to others. There's like a, a pretty strong fundamental psychological need that is verifying to others who we are and getting the social feedback. And what that means is that the range of things that we can predict is much infinite so it starts with um i don't like at least infinity (laughs) at the very least (laughs) um no but it's 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 really amazing um and in that you can predict some simple social demographic characteristics right if i just look at your facebook profile i can get a pretty good sense of whether you're a man or woman you're roughly what your age is whether you are uh, more liberal or conservative in your political ideology. We can predict sexual orientation. We can predict this whole range of social demographic characteristics, income, and so on and so forth. Where I think it actually becomes somewhat more interesting, again, for psychologists, is when we look at some of these more psychological characteristics. So that could be your personality. Um, And the way that we think about personality is really these fundamental dimensions that are driving uh, human emotion, um, cognition, and behavior. So, the big five is one of the models that is, has been out there for a long time. It's validated across cultures, across languages, you name it. Um, so, big five, we can, we can predict, but we can also predict things like life satisfaction. So, how well is your life going? We can okay. predict mental health. So, we can get a sense of, do you have are you potentially at risk um, of suffering from, from depression, for example, um, or anxiety, or some of the other mental um, health issues that that are have recently g- gained a, quite a bit of um, attention and traction? So it, the, the, the breadth of things that we can predict about you is really broad. And partly it's because it's essentially our behavior, right? So our behavior is meant to signal to others who we are, how we're doing in the moment. Um, and that's just what we're picking up um, on using using machine learning and algorithms,
0: so there's definitely some positives that can come out of this. You're talking about predicting mental health, and so you could you could foresee, you know, interventions or various different pieces to go in to help people to make sure that hey, all right, let's figure out uh, you're not doing good today, and maybe we can we can create something that will then help making sure that that person stays safe and gets the help they need in various different things. But there's also a potential negative side of this. And this is some of the ethics I know that you're you're concerned about. And I, I go back to Cambridge Analytica and some of those pieces that we've all heard about. But you're saying, hey, look, we can predict your your, your personality in, in Ocean Big Five. And so in doing that, that can lead to, at least from my understanding, is you can understand some of the triggers that people will have and that take them out of. Really rational thinking into an emotional response that they may not even be aware that they are are doing. So, what are some of the ethical implications? It, it, and Cambridge is just one one you know Cambridge Analytica and the political side of it is one thing. And you can also think about this from a marketing perspective and how how ethical can we get on um, you know knowing how how a person thinks about and feels and their personality to sell them something and various other aspects of that. So, just your thoughts on some of the ethics.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of ethical implications, and it's probably the, the topic that I have personally been thinking about the most in in the last couple of years. Which is funny, because when I, so I oftentimes get mixed up with Cambridge Analytica, right? yeah. so it, which is yeah. not surprising, because I got my PhD um, at Cambridge in the Scientific <laughs> Centre. <laughs> so, wow.
1: Fair,
2: fair enough. Um, and it's yeah. true that to some extent, actually, what Cambridge Analytica did was based on the, the research that we had done um, previously. So I, I get that. Uh, but it also means that because I was there from the very beginning, I care a lot about what we do with these things, right? So when I started my PhD, there was like this initial sense of, oh, we can predict people's psychological profiles just by looking at their data. And one of the first questions that I had was, it's fascinating from a research perspective, but what does it mean? But right? if I suddenly understand your... Um, deepest kind of needs, motivations, preferences, get a sense of where you want to be in life, your aspirations, potentially your fears. This gives me an awful lot of power in terms of um, trying to potentially get you to what I want you, I want you to do. Um, and as you said, in many cases, this might be amazing, right? If we can, if we can get a better sense of whether someone is struggling from mental health issues. This allows us to intervene earlier. It it allows us to intervene in a more efficient way because we can tailor it to the person's needs. But it also means that um, it gives us a a lot of responsibility of managing this this power um, carefully and responsibly. And I think there's like a whole lot of issues that come with this ability to, um, to predict psychological profiles. But one is really that right now, there's this huge imbalance in kind of knowledge and control. So most people are essentially producing data on a daily basis, um, and they're just having their data harvested by companies, by governments, who are then using it for their own purposes, which is mostly to (laughs) to obviously generate profits, right? And I think that's one of the big dangers that we see is that first of all, people have most of the time no idea what they're doing. So this, this notion of, informed consent, which most of our privacy policies and regulations are based on, it's just so outdated. Nobody can really fully grasp what it means to click on something on Facebook, because it's not just a click, it's essentially kind of revealing part of who you are and then giving someone else the power to use that knowledge. And so people don't have the education and the understanding um, of what is really going on with their data and behind their backs oftentimes. Um, And then they also don't have the control to necessarily change them, right? So even if someone says, look, I know that my data is precious and that it can be used to influence me and it can be used to influence me in a way that I don't want to be influenced. There's very little that we can do right now because most of the time it's a binary choice. So Facebook, you can to some extent change your privacy settings um, and tweak them a little bit. But if if you really don't want your data to be used, You just have to leave Facebook and most people don't have the capacity to do that. Right. I know there's a few people say, Oh, I left Facebook and then I usually respond to, well, that's great because you still have a credit card and a smartphone. So don't think (laughs) that nobody can make predictions about you because that's just an illusion. So there's really no way of escaping um, right now and saying, even if I'm conscious of my privacy, I'm going to take the action that would be required to, to protect me from and malicious third-party
0: data. Can you game the system? Can you like things that you don't like? Can you do something, or or is there a product out there that does that for you? That says, "Hey, we're just going to randomize, you know, the posts that you follow and different things, and do all of that to, to say, <laughs> hey, you know, screw up anybody that's looking at my data, and they go, oh, you're a, an introverted, you know, whatever, when I'm <laughs> actually not." Uh, is there anything that, that we can do in order to help protect ourselves?
2: I think it's a, it's a fantastic question. It is something that most people are kind of trying to to think about, at least in some way, right? It's like, how do I get around this? Um, and there's a few thoughts on this. So to some extent, you can game the system, right? So if you are liking stuff that is absolutely not you, maybe the Facebook targeting algorithm is not gonna give you the 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 ads that are really tailored to your own personality. But then it's if you were to do that consistently it's incredibly hard and this is coming back to this idea that we're not just talking about one data source right so we're not just talking about your life on Facebook um, it's like it's again your credit card it's your smartphone data it's every single step that you take in the digital world like there's cameras out there there's no way that you can get from lower Manhattan to upper Manhattan without being seen by a surveillance camera right so there's, there's really no way of escaping it and if you Wanted to consistently create a false image of who you are, you would essentially ruin your life.
1: Oh my gosh! <laughs> that,
2: would mean, that would mean having to be that person because there's just no way. It, would yeah. do it Consistently, right? Kind of pretend that you're someone, but not having to live it as a as a as a real person. And I think that's the problem: is that we oftentimes think of data as these silos and buckets. Oh, it's like if I only kind of pretend. Um, in my Facebook likes that I'm someone who I'm not, then there's no way for the algorithm to figure it out. But what's the danger is really that right now, the monopolies, they combine data from so many different sources. um, And it's almost impossible to do that consistently in a way that doesn't interfere with with your life. And then on the other side, I mean, there's benefits to having your data being used, right? So one of the things that I don't like about the current debate, it's usually well, you can either have a good service or you can have privacy. And I'm like, that's just such a false dichotomy. Like you shouldn't have to choose. Users shouldn't have to choose. You should be able to say, I want to get good service on Google Maps. So my Google searches, but I don't want you to have all the data. I want good movie recommendations, but I don't want you to know everything about who I am and then connected to all these other data sources. And we know that there's technological solutions out there that could potentially help us overcome this and bridge this dichotomy. So you can now um, train an algorithm and use kind of personalized recommendations on your phone. Right, so we have these amazingly powerful computers with us 24 seven. So I don't need to send all of my data to Netflix to store it on their service. What they can do is they can train models locally on my phone such that they actually give me amazing recommendations and leverage the power um, and the benefits that data has, but still preserving my privacy because I don't have to share it. And I think that's the discussion that I want to see. It's really not this idea of like, how can I gain the system? And how can I, can I throw off the algorithms, but how can we set up a system and approach that actually allows me to maintain my privacy, um, but also allows me to reap the benefits that, that data offers.
1: That's a uh, that's kind of mind bending, and really that that's that's a great thing to c- to continue to discover and expand on. But I'd like to go back to ethics. The Cass Sunstein has done a great job of sort of laying out these these steps of things that are ethical and ways to approach uh, ethics and and ethical uses of nudges specifically. But you talked about uh, you know the idea of informed consent as being just completely outdated. What what do you think? Uh, is a good ethical rule, or are there some sort of practical ethical rules that the people who are, uh, you know, harvesting this data should be thinking about or could be thinking about when they're using it?
2: Um, I think it's a great question, right? Because oftentimes the discussion focuses around on what can consumers do. And I think there's just no way that they can, can, and there's like a lot of scientific evidence suggesting that we can't just push it on consumers. Absolutely giving them control, amazing, but we have to find other ways um, in which we can we can protect them. One of the ways of thinking about this that I really like that one of uh, a good friend of mine um, who was uh, a former employee of Apple I think has been has been pushing for is that we think of radio uh, of data as radioactive, right? So the idea that it has enormous power, but there is a cost to collecting it, and there is a cost to using it. Um, And I think that is, like, because right now the the mantra is, well, the more data, the better. And in some ways that is true. In other ways, you don't need an infinite amount of data, right? If you have a certain amount, that oftentimes is enough. But this idea that right now companies only benefit from collecting data, and there's not really any cost other than maybe server space and computing power, but that's marginal, and that's really negligible. Um, So this idea of, like, how can we actually kind of make collecting data costly. And I think to some extent that would require, require regulation. So really this idea of aligning incentives, because right now the incentives that we see, at least in the corporate world, are entirely misaligned. So I think if, if we think about ethics, just leaving it up to the, to the market to decide is, is going to be so difficult.
0: So what are some of the things we could do to align those incentives for the organizations to do that? Have you, what, what ideas do you have you guys, you know, thinking about?
2: Yeah. I mean, one thing, and again, it I think what it requires is like a shift in culture and, and a push from consumers. Cause one of the problems is that we're not pushing hard enough, right? So there's like this huge gap between like, what people say, how much they care about their privacy. When you ask US Americans, I think it's like 93%, you're like, oh yeah, privacy is very important. So, like I really care strongly about my privacy. And then you look at how many people read their privacy policies, change their privacy policies, do anything to not have all of their applications collect um, their their microphone data and tap into their pictures. Almost nobody really takes action. And I think that's one of the, the real difficulties in seeing some of these solutions through. Because there's like a bunch of them out there. Um, and this is kind of coming back to Sunstein, the idea of defaults. Mm-hmm. So If we were to change to a default where people's privacy is protected, um, which is um, a notion, an like a concept that's called privacy by design that would change things radically. Right now, it's oftentimes it's just inertia, right? So we don't wanna read the privacy policies. Nobody is actually changing the default. It's the same with um, organ donations. When you have an, an opt-in, there's a small po- portion of the population that actually decides to opt-in. When you have an opt-out, almost everybody um, stays in the system. And the same is true for privacy. If the, the default were was to protect people's privacy and have pr- relatively strict um, privacy settings, then I assume most people would actually go with these strict privacy policies. And what would happen, would have to happen then is that if companies want users to actually opt in to share their data, they would really have to show how them collecting their data is actually improving services. Because right now it's this mantra that all the companies have is like, oh, but like obviously by collecting your data, we're improving services are you really, <laughs> do you think this data, right? If it was the opposite, you really would have to convince me and you would have to make a compelling case and you would have to develop and design an amazing product that makes use of the data. So I think this is one um, context where if this was, if this, um, if companies were to implement this, you would actually see a pretty dramatic increase in the quality of products, but it just has to start somewhere.
0: Yeah. One of the things you just talked about, too, is that nobody reads those disclosure. It's the legal-esque. It's the 10 pages that I, you know, I have to read through 10 times in order to even understand. So is there any thought of just even trying to use some communication perspectives to say, clarify, hey, here are, this is an actual English language that we can read and understand what it is. It's short, it's simple, and this is the element of my data for, you know, my pictures. This is the data for my voice, and I can click on either of those. I'm, I'm assuming that has been thought of, but again, to your point, even if we do that, are people going to opt out of that as opposed to having to opt in?
2: I think it's I think it's a super important point because to some extent informed consent the definition of informed consent is that it's easy for people to understand what they're consenting to right so even right now the way that we use informed consent is not really in, it's consent <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's, it's, it's uninformed consent inform, yeah
2: <laughs> very much uninformed consent if you think about it because nobody nobody has even a chance to to understand it if you have those 10 pages and then they're probably linking to another privacy policy that's embedded in their own privacy policy. So I think the the GDPR, the European Data Protection Regulations, they place a stronger emphasis on this kind of informed part. So you have to make it simple, you have to make it such that people can understand it, but even then it remains relatively unclear what that means. Um, So one of the things that would be amazing, right, is to in the food system, like we have that, when it comes to um, food, like we have a relatively simple system that tells you, What's in the food? Is it healthy? Is it not healthy? Um, I think in in Germany and the European Union, we have like this traffic light system, which is like, it's yellow, it's red, it's green. So make it easy for people to get a sense of, of what's happening there. And what we see is that it does make a difference. So there's like one project that I'm working on right now, where we're essentially trying to see how much people value their data based on different ways of telling them what their data really looks like and what it means because um, that's, it, there's this illusion that companies now have to be transparent about their data. And now Facebook shares the data with their users, right? So I have the ability to now download all of my Facebook data and see what um, information they hold, hold on me. But it's impossible to understand. Again, it comes like in a JSON format that has like brackets and numbers. And it's like, like people, and my sense is that it, it, in a way it probably backfires. Right, because like right now people can actually they have this false sense of, oh, it's transparent and I can look at the data. And then you look at the data, it's a bunch of numbers, it's a bunch of nonsense, and people are like, Well, if that's that's the information they have about me, I don't need to worry. This is like ridiculous. <laughs> like, I don't care. And if if you translate that into something meaningful, people suddenly kind of value their data a lot more. GPS is the most the easiest example, right? If I give you access to your GPS signature. It's a bunch of longitude, latitude coordinates. It's its like, it doesn't make any sense if you just look at this. It's like, okay, this is a, is a CSV file that has a million rows, um, two variables, which is longitude, latitude. What could people possibly infer from this? And then when you show people, even just plotting it on a map and showing people, look, I can essentially say from your data, I can track your path on every single day. I have a pretty good sense of where you live because that's where you are at night every day, mostly, especially now. <laughs> yeah. Get a sense of where you where you work because uh, that's where. You, but I can also get a sense of like what do you do on the weekend? Like what are the places that you visit? What are potentially the events that happen in those places when you're there? Um, so once you show people what this data really means, you can see that the 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 extent to which they value it goes up by a lot. And I think that's the that's the part that we're not doing a good job at right now.
0: Yeah. Tim and I actually had a conversation with a with a person a couple of years ago at a conference. It was a behavioral science conference. And this person was talking about this new uh, work that they were doing that was taking very specific geolocation tracked by your phone and uh, matching that with some other things that they would, and he was talking, we were in San Francisco and he was saying, look, so I know in San Francisco, it's these micro um, uh, kind of weather patterns. So in, in one part of the city, it could be 79 degrees and another part of the city, it could be 86 degrees. And by knowing where you are, matching that with the weather, matching that with some past history of you, they would go oh tim and kurt are together but tim will get this this coupon that says hey it's hot out and you always drink you know you drink beer when it gets to 79 degrees or you're more likely to so we're going to send you a coupon kurt you don't drink it until it's 85 degrees so you don't get a coupon and and he was super excited about this and and both tim and me had this like visceral Ooh. response of like that's like creepy that's <laughs> just it's 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 <clears throat> almost like too much. And that's the piece where, again, what you're talking about, I think, really comes to light is how does this stuff get used? And to your point, they know where you live, they know where you work, they know what you do on the weekend, and they even know like if you're in a 79 degree weather and you buy beer at 80, I'm not going to send you a coupon. But as soon as the weather gets up to 81 degrees, you're getting a coupon for Miller Lite.
1: Well, you you and you mentioned GDPR. I remember when GDPR came out, there was like, oh my gosh, it's so intense, it's so strict. we will never going to be able to and now it's just like so what and is is there anybody that's are there any uh either institutions or organizations that you think are leading the way on how to do privacy right
2: that's a it's a great question so i'm actually in the process of setting up a center on digital ethics which is trying to do essentially that because it's so complicated that's the problem like any single Right? like a psychologist perspective only goes so far, like a legal perspective only goes so far. So what you need is really get people together to think about this from a more holistic society level. There is an institute, um, it's affiliated with NYU, uh, the AI Now, um, and they are doing an amazing job. So they annually put out this report where they talk about what are the latest developments in machine learning AI and what are the challenges that we're facing? Because I think that's one of the things it's really the first step, right? We don't even know what the big questions are. We don't know what wow. the big questions are for tomorrow. Um, and I think that's that's what we should be thinking about because the technology is evolving so fast. And what we're talking about right now is almost, it's not entirely outdated, but it's <laughs> it's always outdated tomorrow, which also means that the way that we think about privacy, it just has to change fundamentally. Um, and I think that the example that you gave, Kurt, is a, is a really good one because so much of like the privacy regulation is focused on data protection regulations, focused on what data is being collected, how is it stored, who is collecting it, and it's just not going far enough. Like sometimes I'm happy to have my GPS data collected, um, because it's useful for Google Maps. Like it's it's, right. it's there is a there's meaning to it, and I'm happy to give it away for this in this context. But in other contexts, I might not be happy at all, and um, and so there's like these recent um. Reconceptualizations of Privacy uh, by Helen Nissenbaum. She's a professor at Cornell um, in Ithaca. And what she says is that we should be thinking um, of privacy as contextual integrity, right? Mm. So so it's really about the how is data being used and in which context. So I might be happy to share my GPS data uh, with Google so that they can use it for Google Maps. But if they then turn it into predictions about what I do, who I am, and they kind of turn it, use it in a different context, then my privacy might might be violated. And I think that's such a critical part of really kind of the way that we think about privacy is it matters like how the data is being used. It's not just the data itself. It's really the, the purpose for which it's used, intention with which it's being used. Um, and that is, is in my opinion, only going to accelerate. Right now we're talking about um contextual factors that we can pick up with your smartphone so it's not that i know that it's tim and kurt i now know now that tim and kurt are currently in a somewhat extroverted situation because they're together and it the weather is nice so they're probably doing something fun outside and this is yeah. like now we're talking about smartphones but you can imagine that at some point we all have like these contact lenses which is <laughs> i think what i see coming relative yeah. right contact lenses that capture everything that we see and then also feedback specific information to us. So that those are the things that I think we just have to have a conversation about in a in a wider team of scientists, practitioners, the general public.
0: Yeah. Well, Sandra, you bring up another good point is the contextual aspect. So that the story that I told, you know, for Tim and me, that seemed a little freaky, but for somebody else, they might be very hey give me a coupon when it's 80 degrees for the yeah. local store to get, you know, I can go buy a six pack. That would be fantastic. I would I would welcome that whereas for uh, you know, myself that's that's a little bit too invasive. So the the difference in personalities and people you're adding just another layer of complexity upon the whole ethical element of this and again it gets into that informed consent. And so, how do you create the informed consent such that I can opt out, whereas somebody else can opt into that? But that's a very specific thing. If it was something, you know, it, then you get into you can't opt in and opt out of all of the different situations that you can you can deal with. So, just logistically, it's it seems like that's a. It's a mess that you guys are having to
2: do. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, which makes it interesting to some Yes, people. yes. It's funny because the contextual um, like advertising marketing stuff has also been suggested as a way to collect less user data. So there's this argument that says, well, if you understand the context, you don't have to collect as much information about the person. And then it becomes much less about, oh, this is you right now. And the the example that you mentioned is a a combination, right? Because they know, okay, you have beer when it's 85 degrees and Tim has beer when it's 75 degrees. So there's like a combination of context and, and who you are. But you could imagine like this entire shift to just contextual targeting. So I don't need to store all the information about you. I just need to know right now, what's the context? What's the situation you're in? Um, and how is that likely going to influence your behavior? So it's like a super, like classic, uh, personality social social psychology debate on like whether your behavior is influenced by situations or your personality.
0: <laughs> and, and as Mann would say,
1: it's both. So
2: both. there you go. <laughs> yeah, you know.
1: But all
0: right, yeah.
1: <laughs> that that's right. So you know, one of the things that we've been we've been having some conversations with people about um, about being in your groove. And uh, you, what one of the and I'm, I should actually just predicate this. One of the greatest things about what Kurt and I get to do is to talk to passionate, bright people like you. Like I, your, your, your fire and brimstone is just coming through the, the image. And I, I hope that our listeners are, are capturing some of that because it's just fantastic to have this conversation with you. We, we, we love it. At the same time, we're kind of curious about just, are you in your groove? Like, when are you in your groove? How do you, know, you look like you're absolutely in it, but do you feel like you, you've got a groove going right now? Do you, are you feeling uh, it?
2: I think that's a wonderful question because I'm usually in my groove when I have these conversations. It's really funny. Like, I think what, like the image that people have of academics is that like we're either in a lab, we're teaching <laughs> or we're doing something. And most of the time we just sit at home and we write and we try to get papers published. <laughs> and it. Right. Um, so those are the moments where you're absolutely, You love the stuff that you're talking about, but those are the moments that are just painful. Um, And the the grooving part, I think for me, is really when I have these conversations about the topics that I care about. And a lot of it is with my students. Um, It's just amazing, right? So they challenge me every time. um, And it's really funny because you, like, I mean, like I'm a professor for four years now, but I remember coming in um, and I had this idea, I was like, okay, I have to be the expert. I have to be the person that knows everything. Um, so then you have like students who've taken classes um, on advanced machine learning. And I'm like, guys, you just know so much more than I do. Um, and I think at the beginning, I was like, oh, that's a bit terrifying <laughs> and intimidating. And now I love it. So now I have my the meetings with my students and I'm like, amazing. You took this class. Teach me. Like, yeah. And I think those are the moments that give me so much energy um, that... Like, totally proving.
0: It sounds like you changed your mindset on on kind of like, all right, I need to be yeah. the expert. no, I don't have to be the expert. So my mm-hmm. mindset has changed and that allowed you to have that more of a of an exchange uh, experience that feels better for you Is that yeah, it, it, yeah.
2: Totally. And I learned so much more, right. So it's like I become better and um, by having that mindset. so it's it's made everything more enjoyable.
1: It's it's funny. I was uh, doing. I, I did a guest lecture at a university one time, and afterwards, the the professor who sat in while I was guesting said, "Just to let you know, you actually don't have to be the smartest person in the room." And I was like, <laughs> wow, that was just mind blowing, you know. And sure. and that that was a big mindset change for me was then to actually open it up and say, "Oh, let's actually leverage the knowledge that the students have. Let's yeah. engage them in a different way." Yeah, Kurt's, Kurt's giving me the look like, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: I do have to say, because it is funny, so I mean, like, I teach a lot of the MBA students, right? And my sense is that you have to establish some competence in the beginning, because otherwise, they're like, hmm, do you really know what you're talking uh, about?
0: And, once uh, you have yeah.
2: this, and I think it's probably also true for um, younger faculty, which is like, what do you know? <laughs> you're, yeah. like, you're just roughly the same age, right? Um, so, and I think then you can have these amazing conversations. You just have to get everybody on the same page um, that's what we're doing here. Yeah, yeah, I
0: think that's really interesting. So what uh, your work is beyond just uh, this. So so what are you working on now? What's exciting you beyond some of this this ethic work on machine learning and personality and digital footprints?
2: That's a It's a great question. So one of the things that I've actually recently become, much more interested in is this concept of shared reality. So the the way that people make sense of the world together, the way that we actually get on the same page and create the shared understanding of, of what's happening around us. And I've mostly been interested in in, in the context of um, like the political system in the US, which mm. is like coming from from Europe. Um, I think just like being exposed to what's happening in the US and the way that people talk to each other or not talk to each other um, is really... It's really quite puzzling. Um, so I've recently just kind of tried to better understand why is it that people don't talk to each other, right? So is there any ways that we could potentially even use some of the, the techniques, like the um, understanding people's psychological motivations and preferences and needs, um, to facilitate dialogue and get people to talk to one another again? Because what we know is that oftentimes we have like a super egocentric perspective and outlook on the world, right? It's like really difficult to step outside of our shoes um, and take the perspective of someone else. And to some extent, this like profiling is a way for us to at least try. Um, so that, those are things that I've recently become more interested in. It's really the sense of like, how do we create shared reality again, both on a, on like this relational level where we like the other side, um, or it's, at least we don't hate them. That would be a good starting point. Um, but then we also have this trust again that what we believe in, to some level, we can we can all agree on, and it's not just purely subjective um, on how we how we kind of perceive what's going on.
1: So the shared reality is the focus. There's the objective, right? That's where you want to go because it sounds like you're describing a world where there are not shared realities.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's interesting because what oftentimes happens, and there's like this amazing book that I can recommend by Tori Higgins, who's one of my uh, colleagues at at Columbia. He has a book on shared reality and its subtitle is, I think, what binds us together and tears us apart. Mm. Like Shared reality has these both sides. So if you think about it, we oftentimes, and this is true for liberals and conservatives, we have a really strong sense of shared reality within our own group. So the the way that I feel about my fellow um, Democrats is like a very strong sense of shared reality. It's just that this sense of shared reality happens to clash <laughs> with a sense of shared reality that is kind of wow. on, the, on the conservative side. So in some way, like it's really this, this idea of like, how do we leverage shared reality such that it's not just benefiting the in-group, but that it facilitates dialogue a- across the aisle. And that's really difficult because the same construct, same feeling, same cognitive processes have these two different outcomes.
0: Is there any work that you've seen, and I've heard some components of this, that uh, if you don't trigger that, and again, thinking about the political perspective of this, if you don't trigger that political um, signal that we are much more aligned around that shared reality up until the point where all of a sudden it is, this is a, democratic perspective or this is a republican perspective and all of a sudden where you could have been agreement before now it 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 separates that out have you have you done any work on that or or know of anything on that
2: so i haven't done anything specifically on that myself so far Um, but there's a bunch of research on this so there's a bunch of research showing that first of all like our our like arguments that we have when it comes to specific issues they're just highly politically motivated right so like the fact that um, Republicans are more skeptical of climate change is partly because it just benefits them. So there's like this research, I think it's coming out of, is it Duke or Cornell? Um, somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and what they show is that if you just reframe the benefits that people have from policies, uh, climate policies, climate policies, totally changes their perspective, right? So when you say, okay, climate policies... They're actually going to kind of allow more freedom to the individual and we're going to lower tax we're going to raise taxes depending on how you frame it people are like oh my god i think climate change is a real problem we should be dealing with this right now so like motivated reasoning you you really see um all across the board but it's true that if you can get people on the same page first and establish something and this is true for like political polarization but that's true for diversity um, more broadly. So if you can get people on the same page first, then leveraging these perspectives is so much easier. So that's some of the work that I'm actually currently looking into in the context of teams mm-hmm.
1: and diversity.
2: and what you see is because like diversity is obviously something that we value and that we think from a normative perspective, we should be pushing for it. but it's not easy, right? It just means that you have people with different backgrounds. They speak different languages when it comes to how they think about the world, how they think about work. Um, like you could just put business people with engineers in a, <laughs> in a, in a meeting and you'll experience this firsthand. Um, but then the question is like, how do we actually get leverage those perspectives? Because if I don't see any connection to you, there's no reason for me to really listen to what you have to say. And there's no real reason for me to think that we are on the same page. So what we find is that if you have di- like diversity in your team, And you also have this, you manage to create the sense of shared reality. That's actually when teams perform the best. Mm -hmm. And so you have this diversity in perspectives. You manage to get them all on the same page, create a shared understanding. And this is incredibly powerful. On the flip side, if you have a diverse team that doesn't manage to create the sense of shared reality, that's when things fall apart. And that's actually, then it becomes problematic. So it's really in a way, you can think of it as as a leadership challenge, right? And leadership could be in the context of organizations, but it could also be on the, a larger political scale where it requires leadership to bring these diverse perspectives together.
1: Wow. I'm just going to meditate on that for a while because that's 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 so cool, Sandra. Uh, you've also done some work. Uh, I want to go back to personalities for just a minute. And predicting musical tastes and musical preferences. I know that this isn't the center of your work. This is not the core of it, but but we are behavioral grooves and I'm I'm curious about what, what thoughts you have about that.
2: Yeah. So it's it to some extent it comes back to the the very beginning, right? The idea that personality is an expression of our preferences and it's an expression of who we are and how we relate to others. I think that's oftentimes overlooked in that people think of oh personality is just that's What's unique about this one person but it also means that it's influencing the way that we interact with one another and um, so what we did in the context of of music was actually see how much our musical preferences are influenced by our perception of who the artist is so mm. that um i don't know you name it justin bieber bob dylan britney spears um Coldplay, ac dc um, So we looked at the perceptions that people had about the personalities of these different groups. And we also looked at actual follower personalities. So we have this huge um, uh, Facebook data set where we can look at, okay, the official fan page of Lady Gaga. What's the personality of all the people who like Lady Gaga? Um, And what we see is that it's really, it seems to be the case that we... We kind of enjoy music. We kind of follow musicians who are similar to ourselves, um, who are similar in terms of their personality profiles. And that, to some extent, from a social psychology perspective, makes a lot of sense, right? Because we create our identities around who we are, but we also create identities with the people around us. So if a musician attracts predominantly people who are similar in terms of their extroversion levels, in terms of their open-mindedness, and then the, the experience that we have, and following these musicians, going to concerts, listening to their lyrics is likely going to be one that resonates um, with the way that we see ourselves and also, again, helps us to express to the outside world of oh, this is who we are. Like, I'm a Lady Gaga fan. Um, so just assume that I'm extroverted and open minded. Um
0: Which is why I don't, why I don't listen to Justin Bieber, you know, I mean, it's all his his music is fantastic, but man, I just don't want to be associated with a Bieber, you know, whatever that happens
2: to be considered quite uh, conservative and, and traditional and conventional. So assuming that you're uh, you score high on openness to experience um it wouldn't be a good fit anyway so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love that I love that uh, so uh, let, sticking with the musical theme do you uh, have do you like to listen to music while you work?
2: I do um it's funny because it really depends on what i what I'm working on so when I code and I just write to kind of I analyze data, I kind of write code this is music is perfect um so this sort of gets me into groove. <laughs> Uh, aligned with the theme here. Um, But when I write, it's impossible. So when I try to read papers, really try and understand what they're doing in terms of the methods, or I try to write a paper myself, then I find it extremely difficult to listen to music. So it totally depends on Hmm. what you're working on.
1: Well, just down the, uh, actually, at at Columbia, there is a a researcher, Melanie Brooks, who is collecting data on, uh, do you know Melanie? You, yes, just
2: break two floors down if, if if we were in the office.
1: <laughs> well, if you were in the office, right? So Melanie is collecting data on um, on working, uh, you know, the sort of the relationship between do we listen to music while we work and is it additive, is it subtractive, that sort of thing. And so we're we're just helping her collect some anecdotes uh, it's from. Awesome.
2: And, that's and, so funny, because like we're we're Facebook friends, but apparently I still did not know her. Uh, she's doing all this cool research, so that goes to show how Facebook is somewhat limited. But.
1: What, well, what? So if if you're coding and you're going to listen to music, what kind of music do you like to listen to? Do you have a playlist that you
2: use? I do. Um, so it, it also depends a little bit on my mood. Sometimes I just listen to piano music. No, um, and that's super mellow, obviously. Okay. Um, but I do like to listen to, to techno music um, quite a bit. And again, like different, different types, but I think Germany has like this huge techno scene that I, yeah. <laughs> that I love to be part of. Um, so there's like this amazing group of DJs that are at, uh, kind of Karte Blau. They have like um, clubs in Berlin and fantastic music on Sound, uh, SoundCloud, which I can highly recommend. And that just gets me, gets me in the mood.
1: That's fantastic. So, I, I mean, I I know that Germany didn't create EDM, but man, mm-hmm. uh, certainly took advantage of it. That's for sure. Are, so, are, are Blau, You said
2: Blau is, is one of them. Are,
1: are there Are there any artists that you like in particular, or or stations? You know, with, with within this that.
2: I mean, I usually just listen to like, do SoundCloud. Oh, okay. Find them on Spotify, and they have a bunch of DJs associated with them. So it really depends on. The specific
0: type that you're looking for hmm. that's cool fantastic sandra thank you this has been super super informative and fun and we just appreciate your taking time but also the the wonderful insights that that you brought to us and while it's scary on some factors i think what you're doing is providing hope out there and i think that's uh wonderful so thank you
2: Amazing. Thanks so much. This was definitely a grooving session. (laughs) I very much enjoyed it. Thanks, guys.
0: Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Sandra, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our digitally expressive minds.
1: Oh, not brains. Are you, just, I'm going minds today. You're going yeah. minds today. Okay. Yeah. I, I like that. D- the expressive side. This, So, it's not so, so much about being limiting. It's about expanding, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just the fact
0: that we do express ourselves so much digitally and we give so oh. much of our information out there. And it's that big world computer that's just soaking it all in and then the singularity is going to come and then we're going to be, you know,
1: <laughs> the underlords for the, the computer takeover. But you've been reading too much science fiction, I think. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe uh, I okay. haven't been
0: reading enough, Tim. Maybe <laughs> I haven't been reading enough. That's what. All I'm right.
1: Reading. So where do you want to start our grooving session, Kurt? I'm just so scared about how
0: much they know about us and and how easy oh, yeah. it is for them to take that information and paint this personality picture of us uh, I don't I don't know it was it was eye-opening I have to say that
1: Sandra didn't exactly paint a rosy future you know for uh, or at least a current view of exactly what's being collected on us and you know for good reason there's yeah. a lot everything that we do there is a data, a digital trail, there's digital exhaust from everything that we're, you know, puttering around in. So I get that that's a, that's a problem.
0: And I thought that my just going in and clicking a few likes on things that I don't really like would just make it all not work for everybody. But she kind of dissuaded that. I thought that I was getting out there and, you know, throwing a wrench in the system. And and that obviously wasn't the case, man. You're not. You're no. not. You're not. You're not tricking the algorithm. Yeah. So my, my liking of the John Birch Society, you know, and then all the <laughs> other things didn't, didn't really do it. I don't know why. When I followed them, it just didn't change my overall footprint. Huh?
1: Okay. Uh, so- are you actually trying to sort of jam the system? Are you actually interested in – you have? I had.
0: There, there are definitely times where I've, I've been out on Facebook or on Twitter, and I have purposely followed or liked things that I didn't actually like with, oh. the, with the intent of trying to say, hey – you can't understand me. I'm way too, I'm way too complex. I have all these other weird things. You're going to get the wrong picture. You're going to paint, you're going to paint a bad Picasso of me and not the, you know, nice Rembrandt of me. So there you go.
1: Wow. That I'm just going to have to think about that one for a while. The bad Picasso versus the good Rembrandt. That's yeah. I like that. That's a good image. <laughs> I. This is a theme that, that comes up for me on, I think everything that we might talk about today. And that, to some degree it's overwhelming for me the yeah. the potential consequences it's just too damn much for me to really fully process especially in real time or to even plan for how i want to engage online and and i i and is it willful ignorance is it cognitive dissonance yes <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's also in line with how i think about big things like Is the government planning an attack? Is the U.S. government planning an attack on Syria? I don't know. And I don't, I can't care about it. Like there's a part, I'm glad that there are people who do. People should care about it, (laughs) but not me. But not me. So
0: isn't this different though? Because this is about us. This is the information that these companies and like the government is collecting about us as opposed to what the government is going to do in some third world country, which again, we should still be concerned about. We just don't have control. I think that there is this element of somewhat of control, or at least perceived control that we should have. This idea that I am putting information out there, but it's being used in ways that I don't know about. And it's being mined for things that are not always in my best interest and that is discerning for me that is something that i feel yes i like i would love to rationalize it away i would love to have that willful ignorance and i do 99 percent of the time but there's that one percent of the time where it just it hits me and i go holy crap what the hell is going on? And why, you know, what can I do about this? And what should we do about this? And I'm very, very glad, as you said, that there are people like Sandra out there who are actually focusing on this more than the 1% that they are focusing on this much more, because I think it's a big issue. And it's only going to get worse as technology increases, as machine learning improves, as more of our lives become digital, you know, how do like bank robbers uh, or, or people who've escaped from prison how do they how do they even like not get caught immediately in in our world today yeah. right I mean you yeah. can't do anything without being traced I, I don't understand
1: yeah I, I think that's a really good question especially when television series inform me that we have facial recognition everywhere <laughs> and that you know automobiles can be traced and people's faces and all that kind of stuff within a- like two minutes, right? It's like all, all within two that seconds. two minutes of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is a bit of a rabbit hole, but I, it it's all overwhelming for me. So, mm-hmm. it, so I, I kind of end up experiencing the government's plan for invading a third world country in the same way that I experience the digital footprint stuff that it's just It's just really huge for years. And Kurt, you and I have talked about this in the past um, off the podcast, but I did a lot of work with Amazon over the years as a, as a partner and supplier and, and customer of theirs. And I think they're a fucking evil empire. I really (laughs) do. I think it's a horrible company. I never had a good experience in working with any of those people. And, and I boycotted uh, Amazon products for years and years and years to to no avail. You know, they they <laughs> just keep getting bigger and stronger. My my little bro, my my personal, you know, I'm not going to buy anything from Amazon. Didn't Your little have, flag in
0: the in the in the world of, you yeah, know, fighting the man didn't matter.
1: Damn, it did not have one iota of impact. I di- I never convinced any of of my friends You included. You you tried to
0: talk to me and I'm going, but it's so easy. It's so (laughs) convenient. Yes. They
1: might be evil, but that evil hurts other people. Not me. (laughs) So so that crusade has gone unanswered. And I'm just, uh, so I guess this bends into the story of, of the digital footprints and the digital exhaust is like, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a, is it a fight that I really want, you know, die on my own sword on?
0: Yeah. Well, and the the thing, so Sandra said, and I'm going to quote her here. So I think I'm getting this right. It says, and she's talking about being an organization, like, like an Amazon or a government and says, I suddenly understand your deepest kind of needs, motivations, preferences, get a sense of where you want to be in life, your aspirations, potentially your fears. That gives me an awful lot of power yeah think about that i mean if if they're able to get to the level of of a personality profile for us and this goes back to cambridge analytica and we've had these conversations and in other episodes that idea of being able to understand you at such a deep level that sometimes we don't even understand ourselves and our own personality to that deep level and to be able to then trigger emotions, that, and, and particularly the emotions that kind of hijack our prefrontal cortex—anger, fear, sex—kind of those, 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 uh, those big ones that release the dopamine, release the other neurotransmitters, where all of a sudden, you know, our thinking brain actually gets shut down. Those are where I get really scared. That that you know, I think for the most part organizations and companies, you say, you know, you think it's evil. I don't know if they're evil. I think they're just focused in on, on certain things and their actions aren't necessarily taken into consideration in the holistic aspect of what is happening. And so some people get hurt and other people don't. Are you
1: defending Amazon?
0: I am. I am saying that the people, I am saying that the people, that, that the leadership within Amazon don't consider themselves evil. Right, no. the, oh, they they, sure they consider no. themselves as good people, and if you met them, you would probably have a decent conversation, and and they would have a really good justification for everything that they do. Yeah. That they are, this is why they do it. They are helping uh, to bring convenience and the all of the the products and services and everything else that Absolutely. to to this piece. I, I think that's true
1: same with Walmart, by the way Walmart it, would be the exact same I'm sure there's yep. charming and attractive people that you know keep the company yeah, and, going and, yeah.
0: and if you you meet those people right you you work with them and and their intentions are are good. What scares me is that when what happens when you get somebody whose intentions aren't good i mean if if this evil that you're talking about can happen when people are having a great a good intention oh, oh yeah, I see what you're saying. What happens when it's not? And and to yeah. that degree, that's where I think, you know, the, the Cambridge Analytica, where I think they came in with once Steve Bannon bought that, you know, you know, worked in buying the company with the whoever it was that they bought, that their intentions weren't good. Their intentions weren't. This neutral. We're just going to find out information and then use it in a in a positive way. It's like how can we twist this? How can we how can we maximize this for our gains, regardless of the impact that it has on the people that we're we're dealing. Anyway,
1: that's uh, we're getting along. Well, I know that the genie is not going back in the bottle. Yeah, you know, I mean, we're not going to get the toothpaste back in the tube because it, this stuff is out there. And I think the best things that we need to do is to think about. An ethical approach to this stuff
0: right which gets into that Sandra's I I love the idea of this ethical digital ethics right and how that can be done and I'm again super super glad that there are people much smarter than you and me thinking about this and putting mindshare on this and I hope that they get it right I don't understand enough of it. I don't understand the technology behind it. I don't understand the implications behind it to to be able to have a really good idea around there, but I'm glad that there are people that are working on it and I think it's something that we should all be thinking about, which leads us into I think this other element which Mary our our research assistant was you know brought up to us this idea of this juxtaposition between vulnerability and authenticity. Yeah. And yeah. this idea that over the past few years, this idea of vulnerability has really gained traction, that we need to be more vulnerable um, in order to improve our lives. Brene Brown has talked about this, others, this idea that, hey, if we're more vulnerable in our personal lives, more vulnerable as leaders, more vulnerable uh, as, with our, as a parent, uh, that that leads to more and better relationships and a better life and yet there's this as you said that that exhaust that happens from that particularly if if that some of that vulnerability is online that can then be
1: picked up by these organizations and again be used against us so on a on a corporate and uh, organizational level we've got policies and procedures and then of course we've got multinational organizations that are going to have to sort of balance these, these policies on a country-by-country country basis because it could vary. But on a personal basis, I feel like it kind of gets back to the survival paradox that we need, that Brene Brown is right, and, and so so glad that Mary brought this up, that we need vulnerability and we need authenticity. It, it, it's not so much that they're juxtaposed. We actually need both of those things in order to be like the best human beings. At the same time, we don't want to be duped. Yeah. We, you know, we, we, we don't want to put ourselves in a place where we're going to be taken advantage of Yeah, that, you know, that, that's, that's like the big, the big issue for me is that we have to continue to delicate, find the delicate balance between, okay, in order to survive as a, as a tribe, we have to share things with other people, mm-hmm. but in order to survive individually, we have to protect ourselves.
0: Yeah. And this idea that the only way to protect that information that you know, Sandra said is, look, if you don't want your data used, you have to leave Facebook. You know, <laughs> right, and, right. and for most people, right. Right. you know, again, I use Facebook because it, it connects me with my nieces and nephews and different things. I'm not out there a lot, except for, for work kind of stuff. You know, I think for a lot of people, that's a connection. That's how they yeah. connect with others. It's it's it become a big part of their overall life. And so,
1: this is where it gets tricky. This is all of this crazy tricky stuff. Well I'm glad I'm glad we didn't solve any problems there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's
0: just it as you said, it's overwhelming and sometimes it, I just want to I want to go and read my paper book and sit in an un would area and <laughs> buy everything with cash and live off the grid, you know. There you go. I mean, she talked about shared reality, which I thought was cool. This yeah. idea that, yeah. hey, if we can't even agree on the reality that is in front of us, how are we ever going to overcome this tribal aspect of, of what we are? And and what is it that builds that shared reality? I love that thought. I think if, if we can get to a point where we're looking at, I don't know, say the January 6th uprising and we all have, uh, not that we agree on the the rationale or the purpose, but we uh, at least say here are the facts, and these facts are based on a shared reality that is truthful. I think that goes a long way, and I think we've gotten really far
1: away from that, and and that's kind of yeah. scary. It's worth pointing out that a shared understanding of something of an event like January sixth doesn't necessarily mean that we share the same solution ideas that we all buy into the same you know, what's going to happen next or what's the best way of dealing with it. We can have a whole variety of, of different solutions, but to have a shared understanding is to agree on the, the fundamental aspects of what happened. And, and that's, that's a big problem that we have today that we didn't have 30 or 40 years ago.
0: yeah. Well, and even going into organizations, right? And, and she brought this up, like the teams that you have inside an organization. an engineer has a different you know perspective yeah, no. than a marketer than the HR folk. And so as, as a company, if, if you are a leader in a company, you need to make sure that you're building the shared reality so that you're not having people talk but not understand. That's the big piece there. Absolutely. And yeah, it's it's crazy. You know, so just putting the diverse group of people and this even, you know, diversity, right? So you get people from different backgrounds with different cultural aspects. Make sure that you're having a shared reality because they come from different worldviews. And if though if you're talking about an event. And they're very different worldviews on that event. They're going to miss it. It's our, it's, it's behavioral grooves all over again, Tim, right? It is, it is when we picked out the name and you had, (laughs) you had your, your, you know, shared your reality of what behavioral grooves meant. And I had my reality of what behavioral grooves meant. And we were, we were not aligned. And so no. you, it was you know behavior and music for you, and it was behavior in our minds for me, right? And the yeah. grooves in our and minds. habits and yeah. routines, and yeah. and we just we thought we had a shared understanding, but we didn't. And there are too many times I think when organizations, when even within our families, we we think we understand, we're saying the words, and the other person are saying the words back to us, but we have two very different interpretations of that reality. And yeah. so we we just need to make sure that we
1: dig down deep on that. So with that, hang on folks, we've got a bonus track coming up that Kurt's gonna gonna share with us. This is Kurt with our bonus track and groove
0: idea for the week. Our discussion with Sandra made us open up our eyes and realize just how much we are sharing about ourselves. We knew this at some level, but the conversation highlighted just how easy it is for somebody to paint a picture of us and get down to our inner core. As Sandra says, how this information is used could both be positive or negative. Positive, it could help in identifying people who may have depression or be thinking about suicide, which could lead to earlier and better treatments. On the negative side, companies or political operatives could hijack our emotions to get us to buy or vote in ways that are not in our best interest. Our digital footprint can be a very powerful tool. This led to a discussion on digital ethics. How do we regulate or control this when the power is held by the big companies and very little control by us, the people using those services? As Sandra said, how do we create the incentives for companies to treat our data and information well? The idea that informed consent is enough is outdated and potentially dangerous. Finally, we talked about shared reality, the idea that the world we see, even the words that we describe that world with, are dependent upon the group we identify with. That it is hard to have a real discussion with someone when we see reality in two distinctly different ways. Sandra is exploring how we can build those shared realities and make those conversations more meaningful. On to our groove idea for the week take action and go out and review what data you are sharing on the different digital platforms you use and even beyond those digital platforms. And then read the fine print and see if you are okay with that. And if not, change your privacy settings. With that, we want to thank you for listening. We do appreciate the time you spend with us and hope that it is valuable. If it is, please leave us a review or share this episode with a friend and do that digitally so that it can be tracked by us and we can go back and figure out who's what listening no no don't worry about it we're not that sophisticated anyway we encourage you this week to go out and find your groove